Richard, I am free of the gunfighters now, aren't I? Gav, Gav, Gav. I'm scared. There isn't any need to be. I'm still having terrible dreams. It's your mind's way of coping with the experience. You've suffered a great deal. That could have been prevented if only Donald Cotton had paid more attention to his historical research. No, it couldn't. Jerry Davis and Ennis Lloyd would always have drawn it more towards the legend. The feelings of hate. Richard, I couldn't go through it again. Well, you're completely free of it now, Gav. For you, the gunfighters is dead. Forever. For all of us, I hope. It's over. Can you take us back to England? You want to leave us? I want to be surrounded by familiar things. How about public schools? You can't get much more English than that. You'll forget the gunfighters, Gav. It won't always be as painful as it is now. Actually, it might not just be Gav. These two stories are all about amnesia. Oh, I'd forgotten that. Hello and welcome to the podcast where we take something old, a Doctor Who story from the original series, compare it with something new, one from the new series, and add something borrowed, our sketch just then, to make something who. <laughs> yes, it's something who podcast episode 44. I'm Richard, and we're back with another look at a pair of Doctor Who stories, this time set in English public schools. First, we've got fifth Doctor story Mordred Undead from season 20. And then we'll take a look at 10th Doctor Adventure, Human Nature, The Family of Blood, from Series 3. And with me to chew over these tales of educational misdemeanours are Big Finish writer and Missing Episodes podcaster Paul. Hello. Good evening. Good evening. Good evening. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and also we've got astrophysics author Giles. Evening. <laughs> and restored to the bosom of something who, after being relegated last time to the scanner screen... It's graphics designer and half of the Dalek 63 to 88 phenomenon, Gav. <laughs> Good evening. I'm a half phenomenon. <laughs> I like it. Are you 63 or are you 88? Mm, somewhere in the middle. <laughs> I'm one of each. I'm the units of 10 from one column. And anyway, it doesn't matter. Carry on. Very good. <laughs> <laughs> Not even going to finish my own jokes yeah. tonight. That's the standard we reached. So Sirens of Audio recently put out a, a podcast looking at their Doctor Who podcast picks. And very kindly, they mentioned something who? I mean, not quite as much as they mentioned Paul Morris, but I mean, they did mention our podcast. <laughs> so you tell me. I, yeah. yeah. Shall I be worried? Uh, no, well, they, they, they love your missing episodes and, of course, your, your big finish stories. So uh, wow. I think you're... Um, Bless them. Yeah, yeah. I must get to work on something they won't like. <laughs> So yeah, so so that was that was nice for us to hear. Thanks, Dwayne, for mentioning us and and making sure that our Antipodean friends have some some knowledge of of something who is a podcast. And also, uh, in the last uh, week, well, months ago, I was a guest on the Primary Sources, uh, an episode from from a Doctor Who show. But just in the last week, it finally came out. So that was a nice surprise for me to find out what it was I actually said all those months ago. Probably a less, slightly less nice surprise for everyone else to discover I was on it. But there we go. So, uh, Rob, thanks for uh, asking me to come on that, and uh, that was fun as well. So let's kick off with Mordred Undead, written by Peter Grimwade and directed by Peter Moffat. 
Mm. I mean, that's enough to strike fear into anyone, isn't it? Actually, thinking about it, <laughs> the, the, the guy who knows how to direct decides to write something, and then they bring in the guy. You know, I mean, let's face it, he's directed a lot of stuff, but you know, none of it with any great distinction. Uh, it's a, it's the third story. Well, okay, yeah, there's the five doctors, I suppose. It's the third story of season twenty. It's the start of a three-story Black Guardian arc, and int- introducing new companion Turlo. Who's got something that they they're desperate to say about Mordred and Dead? We never never see Turlo's hat again, do we? What, 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 why? I wonder why that is. It's, it's such a lovely hat. It's interesting they go down the boater route. That's, that's given hmm. us a sort of Bride's Ed revisited yeah. flavour, isn't it? Which is a rather specific sort of thing, rather than there's no boaters to be seen in um, spoilers in the second story we're covering tonight. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Isn't it? Isn't it more a university age thing than a public than a prep school sort of thing? I don't know. Anyone posh can help me out with that? Mm. We didn't have hats. I don't think those revolting blazers as well. Mm. I'm only half posh, so I went to an independent school, but it wasn't a public school. Um, yeah, it's a bit funny they didn't do a... I, I did make a note. It's, it's funny they didn't do a bait and switch on that and actually have more fun with, given that you've got two boys in, as you say, Bride's Head Revisited era mm. outfits, and then they're standing next to a vintage car. Hmm. It's a bit funny they don't they don't go a bit further with that before going ha ha I know we're actually in the present. Hmm. Yes, well there you go. Probably no point trying to look into Peter Grimway's influences. <laughs> <laughs> There's no plasmatons in this one. No. He's a funny writer, isn't he? Did he ever write for anything else other than Doctor Who? I remember Eric Saywood. In fact, I'm I'm going to be quoting lots of half dredged up memories I've got of people involved in this production criticizing each other. Um, after, <laughs> after the event, Eric Sabre was always criticising John Nathan Turner for employing Grimwade as a writer mm. and not as a director, as you pointed out. I think he said yeah. he inherited him the script for Time Flight, which he didn't want to do. But then for some reason, why did he bring him back twice more? I think he said Nathan <laughs> Turner was very keen on him yeah. and he thought he should have been used more as a director. Grimwade yeah. himself thought that he should have been used as a director on his own scripts and couldn't understand why. Thought that made a lot of sense, which of course it does. It yeah. did make a lot of sense. That would have been interesting to see. I think the TV industry had to wait a lot longer to catch up. Decades, really. Mm. I mean, I can't think of many other examples. There have been people, have, other writers have managed that in fits and starts. But, I mean, even Dennis Potter got a lot of criticism when he tried directing himself. Mm. Yes, Grim Wade has <laughs> complained. I can just remember little things he complained about in the production. Um, they're very small things, but I think they're illustrative of the fact that he thought... Moffat and the actors he employed didn't understand what he was going for but things like the little things the performance of the the nurse or the matron um, he said was completely wrong she's played very sympathetically and he said she should have been a dreadful old harridan and my main reaction to that is if it's not clear <laughs> couldn't you put that in the script yeah the, the nurse the matron says she is a dreadful old harridan yeah so A, he didn't, and B, it wasn't clear enough from the dialogue how it needed to be played so you know it kind of bounces back on on the writer himself there makes me think it's all very well moaning after the fact the only one that stuck in my brain but i think it's probably uh, there were probably many other things he wasn't happy about he probably complained that the actor playing was his name hippo yeah. was not was not a plus size actor but of course that right. is worth commenting on because he's referred to over and over again <laughs> as being fat in the script and isn't which is no. slightly bewildering you'd think you'd either cast somebody to go with this uh, you know, it's not. It's not like he's going to have an extra dimension to his character. It's just a very yeah. cliched, superficial thing. But it does 
it would at least stop you, or that or change the dialogue so the, the viewer wouldn't keep thinking, hang on, am I missing something here? I mean, he is about 30, <laughs> but, 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 but he isn't particularly fat. No, that's, that's just part of the great tradition of school sets <laughs> dramas, isn't it? On both sides of the Atlantic. Do we know, presumably, before Turlow was written in, that that role was the schoolboy, wasn't it? So Turlow was kind of a fusion of what I presume was originally the hippo role and the creating of the new companion. I guess Hippo would have been a more, would have been the prominent sort of hanger on of the story because he kind of just disappears as this goes on. Yeah. As I assume yes, Turlo takes over that role when he had to perform his rewrites. My understanding of it was that this story, you know, as usual, gleaned from production notes and so on, was that this story is kind of a, a case of ending up with a scenario because of a, a whole chain of events that sort of came about by accident and they ended up with this particular setting but i mean i'm i'm not aware that it had that there was a a school story that existed independently of the need to to introduce turlo because this replaced the space whale oh did it good grief yes i mean one of many one of many <laughs> stories to replace the space whale at various <laughs> points <laughs> but i understood that turlo was going to be living in the space whale <laughs> The intention was that the this was the first of a trilogy to the Turlo trilogy, mm. Black Guardian trilogy, and that they then when they dropped the space whale <laughs> and got Moffat to sorry, Grimwade rather to come up with something else, then they sort of you know, Turlo was inherited and the need to introduce that character was in there anyway. I believe the running order was switched. My understanding is that Mordrin Undead was a later story with Turlow, but didn't have to introduce him. And that the public ah. school setting had a protagonist that was a schoolboy. And then when Mordrin Undead was switched to become the story that introduced Turlow, they made Turlow a resident of that school and sidelined the schoolboy character that had been the main boy of the story, I think. So Turlow could have... We could have been denied Turlow's iconic costume. Yeah. I say that with entirely straight face. <laughs> I mean, imagine he might have been dressed in some sort of ridiculous alien garb. He could have been Adric Mark II. Hmm. No, I... Well, he was, wasn't he? Adric had been devised as a sort of antagonist in the TARDIS crew, almost like an evil companion, but not quite. And so Nathan Turner had decided to go further with the Adric replacement by, by properly trying to go for an evil companion mm. yeah i guess i guess it's quite a deliberate thing to replace one futuristic lad companion with another and yeah you could have been whatever garb you have inside a space whale a wetsuit <laughs> what a fascinating character he is so without this schoolboy aspect i wonder what would have else there would have been in the well i suppose the personality would still have been much the same and it's not like we're encouraged to think of him as 17 years old at any point after this, or indeed during this, to be honest. But Yeah, there's not a great deal done with the, the schoolboy mm. backdrop. And he doesn't disguise it very well either. I mean, he, <laughs> I was quite surprised at that scene where he, he, just halfway through the story, confesses his whole situation to someone he thinks is his headmaster. Yeah. It's like, yes, I'm an alien and I've got to kill this other alien and I've met this other alien who's who's sort of blackmailing me and it's a bit of a nightmare. And he doesn't think it's weird that the, the headmaster's just going, well, you are in a bit of a <laughs> But it's one of those things, you, yeah, yeah, he wanted that scene in it, so it happened. 
Mark Strickland makes a very strong impression, doesn't he? I think he's tremendously good. There's a slight tendency mm. towards overacting, but I think that becomes part of the character's charm quite quickly. Mm. Mm. For an evil companion, he's, I think, somewhat more likeable than the two supposedly non-evil companions. <laughs> <laughs> well, they do... Yeah, I was a bit confused. Tegan takes against him, whereas Nyssa... Nyssa is acting as though she doesn't trust him, but then says that she does, that she quite likes him. I think this may be only at the very end of the story, which mm. slightly confused me. Is Nyssa actually in this story? I must say, <laughs> she, 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 she disappear for most of it. She gets a she, new costume, of course she's, she's in this story. She's getting 24 hours yeah. sleep with the Delta Wave Augmenter. <laughs> I'll tell you what, while we're on the subject of the complicated genesis of this story, who wrote it, when and why, how does the alleged original intention to include Ian Chesterton rather than the Brigadier mm. fit into all of this? Is that a last-minute change, or a, you know, a relatively last-minute change? No, that, that, that's the reason it's set in a school, because the idea was... It yeah. was Grimwade wanted to set a story in two time periods, and they were originally centuries apart, and it was encouraged that they narrow that gap and have a, a single linking figure between the two time zones. And legend has it, presumably Ian Levine's own legend, says that he suggested that it should be a past companion. That would became Ian Chesterton. Right. I don't know why. I think just because it was the first and most logical thing for uh, one of the first companions, and that determined the setting of the boys' school because Ian would be a teacher. They then bothered to check, and no. um, William Russell wasn't available. So then they uh, I mean, I mean at... why would you? Why would you bother to <laughs> yeah, check? I know. The actor was available. Yeah, just, like, last-minute thing. Um, so then they looked at Ian Martyr. So it was Harry, All right. and he wasn't available. And so then they approached Nick Courtney, and he was available. So they just stuck the brigadier in as a teacher. Going down the the list of former companions in descending order of likelihood that they could have ever been a teacher. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I always have really mixed feelings about this on several levels. I mean, it's, I'm not going to say anything very startling here. I, I love Ian Chester and I would have loved to have seen him back and we never got him, did we? So it's, it's a shame that no. there, I mean, there were other opportunities later. It's not anyone's fault that they didn't try again at any point over the next 30 years. I do think it would have made, would have made slightly more sense I don't know if it would have been better on any other level. And I'm not one of those people. It was very fashionable at one stage to be very irritated at the inclusion of the Brigadier here because it buggers up. It made just a character point for this story, but in the wider picture, it buggers up the whole of the unit dating, apparently. As if it, as if it, as if it all made complete sense before Mordred Undead, but... I think this is so. So that, that sorry, that was the unit dating yes. uh, horn going off there. Wasn't it, it was actually the unit dating elephant in the room before Mordred <laughs> Undead, and this just brought to the surface the fact that we need to have a chat about <laughs> about these things. They'd have had to have done a lot more digging, given that so much of it seems to rely on regeneration. And you just think if you start with Ian Chesterton, then you've got an awful mm. lot. Of That's true. Stuff yeah. to explain. You know, you can't have you know once you're through the idea that he remembers the Doctor. Yeah, you know, it's yeah, not as true. much of a, it's not as much of a barrier for the brigadier than any of the other candidates to to then get to grips with the idea mm. that okay, mm. it is you. You've just got mm. another face. And I, I I don't want Ian to be stuck in a boys' school without his lovely Barbara for this is for, true. for all this time, yep. and also to to lose six years of his life. I mean, not that I'm particularly <laughs> enthusiastic about the brigadier having. Uh, you know, a breakdown and, 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 and suffering six years of um, torment, but we're left with what we've got, I suppose. I think when I was younger, I used to think that it made more sense 
it would have made more sense with Ian Cheston because more time had passed. So I could believe that he'd forgotten the Doctor. But now I think back on that. That was that was over the ramblings of a young person. Uh, uh, it's only the difference in is just a decade, isn't it? And a decade's nothing mm. to me now, grizzled mm. old Paul. But also the the, the amnesia is a is a technical it is point, a problem, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, maybe it's they have to lean on it more heavily to explain why some the brigadier who was with the doctor for longer and more recently and in much more <laughs> extraordinary circumstances would forget. But of course, I always forget how quickly they get over that amnesia. I mean, it's just half an episode, really, isn't it? From mm. the point at which they meet to it being resolved is very quick. So, Yeah. Mercifully. Well, I say mm. mercifully. I mean, it could have been written well. There could have been a way of dragging it out throughout <laughs> the whole story and, <laughs> and doing it well. Yeah. But I don't think we would have got that. One thing that struck me watching this again today, I had generally positive feelings before today. From my from my memory, I probably last watched this mm-hmm. I don't know, five years ago. Coming at this relatively fresh, I was really surprised by how sort of negative it is and downbeat. You would think that bringing a beloved character back would be a joyful experience, and we're presented with this character who, in 1983, is sad and alone and disheveled and confused mm-hmm. and a shadow of his former self. Mm. And then we're introduced to the notion that encountering the Doctor in 1977 has caused that as well. Yeah. So you've got this situation where he meets his old friend in 1977. It ruins his life <laughs> for six years. Yeah. The Doctor catches up with him, and he's living in a, a, a crappy shed with a rubbish kitchen and newspapers all over the place and a yeah. sad picture of himself. It's so ironic that this was done as fan service. And... The first thing that's done is is the unit dating fiasco, which Ian, Ian Levine says, no, you can't do that in 1977 because that will cause a lot of problems. And John Nathan Turner said, yeah, but I want to do the Silver Jubilee, so bah. Like, what, is this for the fans or not? Okay, fine. So that, So we're introduced to this beloved character whose life is in tatters and he's a sad shadow of his former self moping around on his own. Mm. And... That's not enough. We get to hear about the other old friends from the unit family. <laughs> How's Sergeant Benton do? Oh, he, he, he's a used car salesman now. Yeah. All right. So, you know, he didn't go on to do great things. I mean, you think, what's next? Like, what's, what's Corporal Bell doing these days? Uh, she sells um, concrete mix for a small contractor in the Northwest. All right. Okay. What's, what, had, Captain Yates, did he re- recover? No, he... Uh, Struggled with depression and he's dead. Uh, he's a, yes, he spiraled into alcoholism and he's dead now. <laughs> so it's a great celebration to have all this fun stuff back. But the tone of the story is just so joyless. There are two jokes and they're squeezed out of this dry script. And, and Nick Courtney does absolutely everything he can and he makes every scene that he's in. And he is the absolute beating yeah. heart of that story. If it's not Nick Courtney, I, I, the whole yeah. thing is dead and he, on arrival. He is fighting against the script, isn't he? Because yeah. it's, the, the Brigadier isn't always really, I'm not going to say in character, because he's not out of character, but he's not. He's lacking the spark that the Brigadier had. And again, mm. I sound like I'm just missing the point that this version of the Brigadier has been, you know, has been through all these problems and so on and so on. But I just think the writing doesn't quite capture. I think it's accidental. I don't think that he's deliberately mm. showing us a, a com- convincing, different version of the Brigadier after he's been through these trials. I think he's just not really very interested in writing the Brigadier the way he was. 
But it's also that thing of, I mean, I appreciate I'm having a make-believe argument with Peter Grimwade, but sometimes writers will say, oh, but the, that's what would have happened. The, the character is like that. Be, be, he is sad <laughs> because of the way his life's gone. No, you wrote him like that. You decided he was sad. Why couldn't he have gone on to be Absolutely. admiral of the entire universe or whatever? You decided he was sad. Mm. I think that's what Ben Aronovich thinks about this, isn't it? And that's what he was trying to address in Battlefield. I've got a vague mm. feeling. And there, at least he got Doris. There were some aspects of Battlefield that I wasn't sure about at the time. I remember thinking it was not so much contrived, but almost slightly ludicrous that he gets to bring it back in his uniform and gets him in, back into the action at his yeah. age. But, you know, looking back at it now, I'm thinking, thank God we got to see that again after, after this. Yeah. It might be a little bit. It might be pushing it a little, but um, it needed it. We didn't want to leave him here. I mean, it is. I think it is fantastic that that Nick Courtney manages to create two completely different versions mm. of, of the Brigadier that, that that you sort of believably think are that they're they're quite distinct from each other. Uh, yeah, and and they. I mean, they, they do. I guess also dress up that shared a couple of different ways. So so it does. It does. You know, it does give you the sense that he was a different character six years before. I thought that was quite a neat little thing. The, the 1977 version is tidy and neat and is, it's got more plants in it, so it's more of a kind of living uh, yeah. environment. And the later version, I think, has basically the same props, but the, the, the snazzier ones are, are dumped in the corner and there's just newspapers piled up. And it's a small detail. but It's got a, it's got a leaky roof and a musty smell just lingering. Just... <laughs> he, yeah. It does have a great performance. He almost manages to yeah. look um, thinner playing 1977 Brigadier. I have no <laughs> idea how he does that. He's yeah. just holding his breath. <laughs> yeah, it must be. Anyway, it's, um, <laughs> yeah, he gives it his all. And I suppose it is probably easier to make two distinctive brigadiers than it would have been with Ian Chesterton. I mean, yeah. okay, you've you've dyed his hair, so he's got dark hair, then he's grey, you've got a moustache, uh, <laughs> and lost the moustache. But then, there's, as you said, there's the whole military bearing which disappears and is replaced with something a bit more comfortable. Whereas Ian Chesterton, I just can't imagine how the six-year-older Ian, unless he's got an eye patch or something, would, <laughs> would be so distinctive. Well, you know, horses, of course, is swings and roundabouts. Yeah. That's the thing, he doesn't look like he's, he's that far past Terror of the Zygons. No. And no. thinks in, in his 76 mm. incarnation, does he? I would have rather heard a, a list of stories of what happened to all those Brigadier substitutes, like those mm. idiots from the <laughs> Andor Invasion, the Seeds of Doom. He could have told us what fates had befallen them. Mm. You could have a spin-off <laughs> anthology series with a different Brigadier each week <laughs> getting his comeuppance due to a mishandled alien invasion. <laughs> yeah, and of course, that, I mean that flashback sequence was one of the great glories of early eight Doctor Who. I mean, in in the pre-video era, era in in the time when you know we did, we didn't have access to all of the old adventures. At least, you know, this was sort of about two two minutes, minute and a half, something like that, of of, of short clips of stuff, something as something as old as the invasion. You know, it was, mm. it was, it was a free song going through every uh, teenage Doctor Who fan's heart as they uh, watched those. Yes. That was Ian Levine's compromise for not uh, being allowed to get the continuity right. You can have two, two and a half minutes of clips. It's, it's really funny that apparently Grimway, you know, it was Grimway had the idea that once they'd come up with this idea of having, having a linking character and narrow, narrowing the time differential, as it were, that mm. it was Grimway that said, well, why don't we make it a companion, you know, a former companion, mm. apparently. Didn't he suggest Ch in Chesterton? He remembered him. From the it wasn't Levine, I don't think. It's just funny you th you think oh you know and 
and this is kind of the genesis of the Brigadier being the absolute touchstone of Doctor Who and mm-hmm. carrying on right up until, you know, like, yep. you know, less than, you know, whenever it was, you know, Matt Smith era and, mm. you know, Sarah and, it is nice. it, and stuff like that. It is nice that we get to see both versions of the Brigadier. It's the start of Comfy Brigadier, who, Comfy Brigadier from Five Doctors, Brig- um, Battlefield and Sarah Jane in his tweed. It's funny to think if we hadn't had him in this, then mm. we presumably would have had him in the Five Doctors, I guess. Mm. And again, that was a case where he, he absolutely, as we said when we watched that, you know, he was pretty much the stand, you know, star of the show, mm. really, in that as well. And you know, it's the best best thing in it. He's making lines funny in Mordred Undead that aren't written particularly funny. He's he's got a sparkle that uh, mm. that really lifts it. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. Peter Davison seems to be in quite a bad mood in this one. He's he's, he's <laughs> yes. playing his he's playing up his tetch, the tetch side of his doctor. Yeah. I'm never quite sure why he does that. There's, there are a couple of jokes he tramples on, mm. and there's some there's a couple of really morose bits for no good reason. There's a bit, it's just one I can remember where Brigadier says, "How long will the journey take?" and and the Doctor says, "Come on," but he doesn't do it in a in a isn't it marvelous how quick it was way. He does it in a you're an idiot for even asking way, and kind of tuts at him and storms off. And there's just like the momentary unkindness for no reason. And there's a few of those scattered throughout. It's odd. Hmm. I'd love to ask him where all that comes from. It makes me wonder if um, it's, it's his, his idea of playing a sort of young William Hartnell and he's been misinformed about what young First Doctor was like, what the First Doctor was like, mm. and is playing it more grouchy than he needs to. I, I think he's just realised he's got three years to play the doctor, and 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 this middle one is is an absolute bust, and he's really brushed off. Well, it's not a great script, is it? There's not a lot of um, zing to the dialogue. There's so much, so much you could play with here. Mm. Yeah, I mean, conceptually, and, and that's the thing. Conceptually, I, I like it, but the, the, it's just the, the script itself falls flat. And conceptually, this is quite. This is about as moffaty as the. Yeah, as in Stephen, not as in Peter, mm. as the as the old series gets. I mean, mm. you can imagine a the the companion arc. So that's that sort of element that, as that we've already discussed, and this whole thing about you know the whole the whole Maldrin thing that I guess we'll come on to, and and the meaning of what it is to be the Doctor and the mucking around with regeneration abilities, you know, the threat of taking that away and so on. It's quite yeah. There's an awful lot of wasted potential. I, I have really strong memories of reading the Target book. Obviously, it's easier to achieve on the page, but I remember the misdirection with Mordrin working really well. But well, on Even screen... better than it does here. <laughs> <laughs> if, if you can believe it, it was even better than on screen. And that's the thing, is it fails in quite a few different directions. But, I mean, it's so implausible. They're going back and forth about the Doctor has the power to regenerate. He could have changed. And you think, yeah, but it, it's patently not him. He's not talking to you like he's your friend. He's not <laughs> in the right coloured clothes that you saw him in 30 seconds ago. They're tattered rags, but they're still purple. They don't have that discussion until an episode or two later. The damage is done the very first scene when they rush in and say, Doctor. Mm. And there's not even a, they, just a few lines of, who's this? Is it? It can't be. Yeah. But surely, but no. <laughs> I mean, the, the irony is that later in the story, when he gets his full clothing on, he has quite a lot of beige and peachy colours. You could tatter that into a cricketing outfit to, to sell that lie. Yeah, 
considering how important it is that yeah. we, it's it's unbelievable they believe that they think it's the Doctor, and for it not to seem ludicrously contrived, you could have. Mm. A small amount of contrivance to maybe get him into a version of the Doctor's costume, yeah. which did. I mean, he puts uh, on Tom yeah. Baker's coat not... in the next scene. Yeah, he could have just taken a spare. If the Doctor had left his jacket in the dress yes. and because it's a hot day or something, and then yeah. Morton puts it on, it's something as simple yeah. as that. It's Rather just... than have him in a purple loincloth and then go, <laughs> yeah. oh, it's it's definitely the Doctor in his trusty purple yeah. loincloth. <laughs> Good lord. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's anyway, it's, 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 under those trousers, I suppose. It's no, it's no less plausible than. And Edmund Warwick in the chase. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so is that what Tegan should have said to this? Sometimes he does this. Every so often, <laughs> when you look at him from a distance, he looks almost like a different man. <laughs> With his voice badly dubbed in. I was reminded today of... Uh, I'd forgotten about the fact that David Bradley's face is addressed at the start of Twice Upon a Time, which I'd forgotten. Peter Capaldi's doctor says, Oh, your regeneration's going... Look what's happened to your face. <laughs> It's because it's really jarring, because recasting is one of those things you're just not supposed to notice. So, mistaking David Collings for the Doctor. (sighs) The thing was, that drama of, are they going to believe he's the Doctor, teeters on the brink of really working, and Mm. just continually undermines itself. There's one moment where Mordrin's really clever, and he's remembered each of their names, and he uses their names and calls them my old friends. And at that moment, you think, that's what a huge chunk of this episode should have been. It should have mm. been Mordrin being really clever mm. and really shaking there. But instead, the rest of the time, he's just being Mordrin and he's shouting at Tegan and calling her a prattling child. And uh, <laughs> you just think, well, uh, you know, you're blowing your own cover here. This this just needs carefully writing. Isn't there also a way, and this is not, this is just throwing us out there, there's also a way of making the audience unsure if this mm. really is the Doctor or not. Mm. It wouldn't have made, need a lot of... Um, Mm. fiddling with to get that effect and then it's not like there's so much plot that you couldn't have gone with something big and even bolder like that mm. there's very little plot in this it's a lot mostly running around to fill the four episodes yeah in my opinion so it could have been replaced with something more character based or a bit or a bit of mystery rather than just spinning your wheels for two episodes there's a chunk of episode two where it's really really working everything's clicked and it's making full use of the two different time zones. Mm-hmm. And modern modern Brigadier is feeding information about past Brigadier. The yes. two narratives are told in parallel. That's very confident. And Yes, and I think that is the bit that I always think that the whole rest of this story is as good as. And <laughs> then I always forget that it's not. Yeah. Because that's my abiding memory of how yeah. clever the two time zones are and they interplay. And that goes by the end of episode two. And then it's just two episodes on the ship. It's a real shame, isn't it? Because the last two episodes, it's a bit like that episode three of the Romans that we talked about a couple of months ago. Because by episode three, you've got two brigadiers, Turlow, the Black Guardian, Nyssa, Tegan, the Doctor, mm. Mordred and his seven mates. And they're all wandering <laughs> around the ship in different directions, trying not to bump into but each other. Without the benefit of it being played as fast. I'd have preferred <laughs> even bad, not quite working fast to... And, and as you say, Gavin, it's, in episode two, it's all very clear. The complicated plotting is working, the logic. And if, if he's done anything right, Pete Grimway has, has worked out the logic of his... Um, he must have you know, drawn on a roll of wallpaper like John Cleese plotting 40 Towers. It, it, he's got it all worked out perfectly. At that stage, it's simply enough and being explained clearly enough that the audience can follow it. But then later on, as we go into episode three and four, the permutations of where people are and what must or mustn't happen if they mm. meet, is just becoming... I couldn't follow it. 
And... Well, neither can Turlo. <laughs> and, and that's the problem is that he, he then has a cross conversation with the, with the Black Guardian. And the Black Guardian's like, what are you doing, you idiot? And Turlo's like, well, you told me to do that. And the Black Guardian's like, no, the plot's changed since the last bit. Now I want you to do something slightly different. And you should have known. And Turlo's like, oh, for God's sake, how was I meant to know? I'm... So, yeah, it's all over the place. And, and everyone's motives are changing from one scene to the next. And it's... what really ruins it for me is the pacing. So the, we've run out of character-led plot, and now it's all become a bit mechanical. And at the same time, Grimway decides to speed up the pacing. So we get endless short scenes of people walking down corridors, coming down mm. stairways, in and out of doors. All I can see when I'm watching it is I've stuck my brain... I can't follow it, so I'm starting to think about the production blocks and think, oh, they must have done all those... Oh, those poor yes. actors. They, they, they've got a five-second scene, and they're told to, you know, come through that door and walk across there. That's all I could see was people, mm. actors, been hurriedly marshaled about a studio, barely having any idea what they were doing. And I, I think he thinks. I was trying to remember if Grimwade's other stories have this, suffer from this misguidedly fast-paced editing. Does he think he's? Is he trying to write it like a film? And then I thought, well, perhaps he is, because of course he famously, when he directs, he can yeah. make it feel filmic, like on Earthshock. So maybe he, having succeeded on Earthshock, he's now thinking, if I write that way, yeah. other people will be able to bring this vision to life. And mm. But of course they can't. And Peter Moffat can, maybe Graham Harper could have done, but Peter Moffat can't. And it does just look like, you can just see the panic and indecision in the, in the actors and the cameramen. And what the hell's going on? Just people wandering in front of the camera from left to right and right to left. It's just nonsense. And the fast cutting and the short scenes doesn't inc- improve the pacing. It just makes it, just gives you a headache. And it means that the scenes aren't long enough to have any characterization in them. Mm. I might come back to that in the next story, which I think is almost the complete opposite. Mm. The, this, this story is about bringing back an old companion. So the first chunk of the story is all building up to the meeting of these two. And they've, they finally meet, and of course, the fifth doctor has never met the brigadier. So the brigadier goes up to the doctor, and it's this momentous moment, and the brigadier says, well, who are you? And it's played like a twist. Like, what? why doesn't the brigadier recognize the fifth doctor? Well, he's never met him. And then scene cut. And you, you've been waiting for this moment. <laughs> and then the rug's pulled out, and it cuts to something else. And so you're sitting there thinking, okay, well, uh, that, that, was like a, that was like a big moment. And then, anyway... So next scene restarts. And the start of the next scene, we've missed the action. We, the, the, they've had their big reunion, except the Brigadier doesn't remember it. And the scene starts with us playing catch-up, with the Brigadier saying, oh, I'm very sorry if I don't remember you. We've missed the fun bit where the Doctor and the Brigadier have, have had the faltering reunion that doesn't work because of the amnesia. Yeah, but we, we can't see that. It doesn't advance the plot, Gavin. <laughs> <laughs> well, you say that. But then we have to have that scene again <laughs> because we missed it the first time. So it then plays out a second time on camera where they're back in the school having the same conversation with the doctor presumably trying some of the same tricks saying, well, don't you remember this? And don't you remember this? Yeah. And then it labors to the point where it gets into the quarters and he gets his memory back. And I'm not sure. Does the amnesia actually bring anything to the story? Because... It lasts such a short period of time. Once he gets his memory back, he's just suffering from a typically uncertain memory from six years ago. Mm-hmm. He's lost the memory of the Doctor, but I can't see anything in the surface of the plot. All it does is rob us of a beautiful reunion the first time that they meet. 
and we're even robbed of the misstep reunion because the action cuts away. It's such a weird series of decisions. The only thing that has to do with the plot mechanics is that the amnesia is presumably the reason that he doesn't remember having boarded the having boarded the ship in his 1976. Well, here's another question I've got for you then. So is he lying about that? Because he specifically says that he does remember not boarding the TARDIS. So is he is he lying to get on board the ship? Is he misremembering? Because either way, that seems redundant. All it needs is for that uncertainty to remain and the Brigadier just goes on board the ship in both years. Because it's explained away later as, him, as they, they just say... Uh, Tegan and Nissa say, oh, the Brigadier insisted on coming. And the Doctor says, well, he insisted on coming with me as well. Hmm. It, it, it isn't a plot point that he said, oh, but the Brigadier specifically told me he didn't come with you, so I knew it was safe to bring him. That's not the point. He just said, oh, well, he insisted. So I wanted Tegan to go. have a go at the Doctor there when the Doctor <laughs> says, you blithering idiot, Tegan. Yeah. You... Why do you not understand all the complicated laws of time, you idiot? She says and you'd he have insisted had to have on known. coming. And he... Yes, and then when he says, well, he insists on coming with me as well, she... <laughs> yeah, and she made a decision she first. And, he, in... yeah. and she's supposed to be gobby, but she isn't when she needs to be. <laughs> yeah. Tegan's generally really objectionable and, and is just a, a contrarian most of the time for the sake of it. But in this story, she's the voice of reason most of the time. It's one of the few occasions where she's entirely sympathetic because she's making all the right decisions, saying don't trust Mordrin, don't do this, don't fly the TARDIS, don't let him out there. And because that's just her one-note character... Is to just object to everything. It doesn't seem particularly extraordinary that that she's just saying no to everything Nissa's suggesting because Nissa's usually got a sensible plan of some kind. The brigadier, the Tegan seems to make a big impression on the brigadier because here, when the doctor mentions their name, he remembers. Yes, I remember. He's full of his memories of Tegan. Doesn't seem to remember anything about about Nissa at all. No. And then this carries through into the five doctors, where when he meets, when they all meet up again at the end in the tomb of Rassilon. He goes to greet Miss Javanka before, mm. ahead of Sarah Jane Smith, who we mm. think he might have had a stronger connection with. So, hmm, mm. there's a story there. Yeah, what are you suggesting Ma- there, Paul? Makes notes. No, it doesn't matter. <laughs> Getting back to the pacing, it was, hang on, what are you going to fill episode four with? Because it really gets to yep. all of the pieces are in play in the places they need to be by, by the end of episode three. You've got everyone on the ship. And you've had the you've had the issue explained. I was thinking, okay, how are you going to pad this out for twenty minutes of episode four before before the the two brothers can meet up? And we all moan about the padding in episode threes, but that's where it belongs. You don't want it in episode four when you're racing to your conclusion. <laughs> Every time I watch it, I think, where's that awful bit with the terrible old age makeup with Tignissa and then still to come. <laughs> yeah, it's in a very weird place. The, the end of episode three made me laugh so much. I I, I couldn't think of another example where. The, the threat at the end of the episode is a hypothetical situation because it, it's a conversation where the baddies go, could you do this for us? And the doctor <laughs> says, no, because that would kill me. Roll credits. <laughs> and, and it's just so bizarre. And I was thinking like, because he's not being forced into it at that point, because that's the whole point of the, of the aging of Nyssa and Tegan is it forces his hand. So he has to acquiesce. But at the, point where that jeopardy is proposed is at the end of episode three where there's there's been no mention of the fact that he'll have to do it so Mm. mordrin saying please help us and the doctor says but if i do it'll be the end of me as a time lord and well that's the equivalent of him going 
but if I put my head in that meat grinder and turn it on, it might kill me. <laughs> if I attach these electrodes to my nipples and turn on the current, that might really hurt. So maybe just don't do it. That would be my <laughs> advice. It's just and, and, and it's literally the resolution at the start of episode four. They go, oh, well, let's not do that then. Yeah. And they leave the room. <laughs> yeah. I want to say some nice things about this. So I do like the ideas. And that's why one of the reasons I always go and just think I'm going to enjoy it more than I do. Because I always think, how could I not? It's got a public school and the Turlo and the Black Guardian and the Brigadier. And, and there's a really good science fiction plot, I think. And, some, and time travel shenanigans. I love time t- travel, except Tenet by Christopher Nolan. <laughs> Private joke. No, I. Would you say I this love... was more or less complicated than Tenet? I think the only excuse I could possibly have for the writer and director here are that they were following Christopher Nolan's maxim of treating, <laughs> <laughs> making everything as difficult to understand as possible. On this, if it's not homework, it's not. It's not because they don't film. want to patronise and underestimate their audience. Mm. The only explanation. That's certainly true. The ending. I mean. Yeah. The ending frustrated me so much because Peter Davison's Doctor is, is is not the most he doesn't he doesn't have a great deal of agency a lot of the time and he's a fairly passive character. Hmm. But there are not I couldn't think of another story that resolved itself absolutely perfectly by pure luck yeah. by by the Doctor basically admitting defeat, handing himself over to the baddies, hooking himself up to the machine that he knew would basically end his life and letting them flick the switch. And only by a trillion to one coincidence series of events did two people converge on the same spot who touched fingers at the right millisecond to deliver the power to save his life. I mean, it's extraordinary. But it was also frustrating from a, from a, from a narrative point of view because at no point earlier had they just said, we need an enormous amount of power. It had always mm. been very specifically about the Doctor's yeah. physiognomy, and they needed the secrets yeah. of the Time Lords. And it, it, it was even one if regeneration. you think it's regeneration energy that they need, yeah. it's specifically going to drain eight times regeneration energy yeah. from him. So you don't, it's difficult to imagine how you can convert that yeah. into and, and he said, well, it's the differential between two brigadiers meeting and the energy came from the TARDIS. And you thought, well, if it was that, why didn't you just get a big a jumper cable from the yeah. TARDIS, rig that up, yeah. Yeah. So, so well, nuclear was, power station. I mean, it's a bit yeah. of a worry. It's the old Archon energy, isn't it? It's yeah. The TARDIS is actually like some big old capacitor for for Archon energy. But I'd be curious to know if the if there's other stories where the Doctor has completely conceded defeat and just events in the universe align for no reason. It's nobody's fault. It's nobody's contrivance. It isn't the White Guardian steering things to think. help him. It's pure dumb luck. He's given up and his life saved. It's really disappointing. And what do we think about that, though? More to the point, oh. is it deliberate? Is it primarily aimed at showing just how noble the Doctor is? Is it Caves of Androzani before its time, showing how much the Doctor <laughs> will give up to help his friends? Or, But you can't have your cake and eat it. I mean, you can. Because it doesn't I mean, feel it's, like that, because it's yeah, not written it's, it's, as if the emotion of the, and the sacrifice, which again... Is... Well, Tegan says thank you quietly at the end. I mean, what more do you want? Mm. They didn't do emotions in those days, did they? It's a bit of a worry because, you know, so, so you've, already, you've already raised this issue about the millisecond either way. But there's also this issue that there's, there's eight, well, there's, there's Morgan and his seven mates... So there's eight of them, and the Doctor's got eight lives left. So that's good. But what if there had been nine of them? 
or if there's yes. seven of them or six of them. I mean, what then? Indeed. With, with it's a... it's, well, it's okay because you've still got two lives left at the end of it, so that'll be all right, won't it? I guess somebody at some stage that w- the writer or script had thought that making you know make, making a numerical comparison yeah. would make it clearer yeah. to the audience, but it doesn't. It just makes but it then, seem. But then you've got Tegan and Nyssa coming into the so the suddenly there's ten of them rather than eight of them. Mm. Oh yeah. So he's now he's got a, he's not got a, so that's actually it's a bit of a problem now. So I I don't know it it, it feels like you know that there's that and then and then there's another thing earlier earlier in the story where they they sort of say well every seventy years we'd come close to to mm. the orbit of a planet well well why is it every seventy years I mean why is you know the the universe isn't as regular as that but also you know you could come close to a planet sooner than that if you really wanted to probably. Again, it feels like there's a whole raft of those sort of <sighs> duff ideas that that don't really. I tried to be nice about the about the you, the, uh, plotting, the idea. Well, you're fight, fighting a losing battle because I want to talk about this orbit. Where is it in orbit around? <laughs> oh, look what you've done, Richard. Because the story starts with Doctor Science saying, Mark Two has taken this, over. This <laughs> ship is in orbit in time and space. Oh right, go on then. And they they talk about the ho- the whole thing at the beginning is that the ship is in orbit. But they never say what it's orbiting, and then suddenly the introduction of Earth is a bombshell. After that, mm. and then this thing comes up later that it every seventy years it it passes close to a planet, and the Mordrian people can take on the shape. Presumably, it's really helpful if the beings that live on that planet aren't larger than the door of the <laughs> capsule that they have to well, go down. Well, I assume that the planet is Earth all the time. Oh, I see. No, no. Mordrin's people say that the technology allows them to take on the form of whoever the natives of that planet are. So this is their one and only visit to Earth, is the, is the suggestion in the script. It's on some I felt kind like of... it was a time loop. I, th- I, th- I thought it was a bit like yeah, a I... time loop kind of thing. And... I thought, I wasn't sure about the implications of that, because it went and came and went so quickly. But do we not see Mordrin before he's arrived on Earth? I mean, at what point does he, does he take this We shape? first see him on the floor of the TARDIS, yeah. looking... Normal, like human, and that's because he's used the thing, and then right, he's, he's turned into a human in order to. We but, see the sort of busts on the ship. Don't we? So if he's a shape shifter, kind of, he could easily have changed to look exactly like Peter Davison if they hadn't really done an arc, <laughs> arc of infinity. Look, I've fixed this story. It's only taken thirty years, yeah, yeah. forty years. I mean, it's not explicitly said that it's done by their captors, but he says that every seventy years the ship passes by another planet. And he just sort of says, so that one of us can take the capsule down to Earth, take the form of the natives and try to get help. And so if, if framed in that, you've got to think that if he hadn't turned up all crispy, Mordrin would then have been kind of blundering around the school, presumably in his loincloth. I don't know what costume in his loincloth. Yeah. <laughs> Saying what? Mm. What? <laughs> What help is he? What yeah. help well, just, are they just going... like Turlo, he'll be giving away. His... <laughs> go to the headmaster <laughs> and say, "Look, stuff. headmaster, I'm an alien from another planet." And the headmaster <laughs> will go, "Well, you are in a pickle, aren't you?" That headmaster, he's, he, he, I mean, he's, he's, he's more of an idiot than Hippo, so I'm not, not quite sure that we'd have got anywhere with him. Sorry, mm-hmm. go on. The headmaster, of course, is the original Barusa from. Um... So, ironically, this story, which is set between Arkham Infinity and the Five Doctors, where we have two other Bruces, features the original oh, yeah. Bruce. Hmm. I don't know. I, I wanted to throw that in there, and now I'm Thank wishing you. I hadn't been so keen to do so. Yes, for a story which is so often has too many specific details, like every 70 years we pass a planet, or 
there are eight of us and eight of your lives. You no, know, often throw some details where it doesn't help. But if we'd had any idea of the length of time these these creatures have been traveling, mm. I feel like that would have given them a bit of scope. We're told it's a long time and their search for mortality has just brought them an eternal suffering. But if they'd said we've been traveling this ship for a million years or a billion years or something, I don't know. You know, a nice big number. That would have given it a sense of scale, but we that's the one place where it's a bit vague. How long have you been traveling? Ooh, about 70 years. <laughs> <laughs> I found David Collings' sad, dead, choking, acting horribly uncomfortable and extremely tiresome, and I got bored of it very, very quickly, and then it, it just keeps going for episodes and episodes. I'm listening to him making mouth sounds and <laughs> and it really started to make me feel a bit queasy after a while. And and after that whole process, they'd gone through the whole rigmarole of, of is it the Doctor, isn't it the Doctor? And you thought, okay, at least we've left that behind. And he crawls back into the spaceship chamber and the Brigadier comes across him. And then the Brigadier goes, oh, Doctor? And you just think, oh, not this again. It, it, yeah. it's um, There's a lot of very tiresome aspects i think it runs out of steam very quickly and as you say spins its wheels but i was growing increasingly unhappy with the crispy burnt makeup and then it turns up on nissa and tegan and then there's patches of it all over the other people and it's just the whole story is very oppressive and downbeat and it's all about um it's all about death yeah it's about eight guys who want to commit suicide and need the doctor's help saying anything particularly profound but the, the, then again that is novel isn't it do you not like the fact on some yeah. level that these aren't stereotypical villains they're not particularly evil they are they just they they started off as amoral types who wanted yeah. to steal a technology that didn't belong to them and they there's something yeah. almost mythic the stuff of great a great legend about that yeah. but well, um well, it, it could, could going on as well yes <clears throat> it, it's also heavily influenced by the work of wagner hmm. they've got a virus as well <laughs> yes. Mm. Yes. Which which was a bit unfortunate for Tegan and Nyssa. Mm. Yeah, it's it's funny that um once again we got this whole immortality is a curse, you know, yeah, kind of thing. I and thought that. yeah, you kinda of got you you're time kind of re- technology. revisiting time lord technology and you mm-hmm. know, the fact we, we do this again at the in the five doctors. Mm-hmm. It's not a million miles away from Silver Nemesis and remembrance and Silver Nemesis in terms mm-hmm. of retreading some plot points in the resolution. Mm-hmm. On on the plus side 20 years after Terry Nation tells us the, 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 somebody the anecdote of the Georgian state dancers, we finally get these <laughs> characters shuffling across stage in these long costumes, sort of gliding along, except that nobody seems to have told you know, about half of them at the back. Yeah, the ones at the back. That's definitely, yeah, I was thinking they've, they've practiced this and yeah. then they've, they've come, come a point where they've thought, we haven't got time to get them all working, so we'll just put mm. you lot at the front and just. <laughs> Trying to hide these idiots at the back who haven't quite got it. Yeah, the one at the front's really impressive. Yeah. And, the the and funny the... thing is, I, I was watching them thinking, that's that's really nice and interesting, but but why? <laughs> why? I mean, but but let's let's just you know creatively give them the benefit of the doubt. Maybe they don't have human legs. Maybe <laughs> they are a, like um, Colony Sarf, and they're just like a rolling mass of tendrils, and it's all and that's why they're so smooth. But then you see, no, they come down the steps later, they've just got legs. So they, they walk down steps normally, and they get to the bottom, and then they do the gliding. And it's mm. like, well, that's that's an interesting choice. But yeah, they're aliens, so they just do alien things, don't they? Is that their brains in showing in their heads? Yes. Okay, thank you. 
uh, Y. I reckon. How many and times do we see it pulsating? Is it literally just the first time? Early on. I think Mordrin's scene? does it early on and then they give up on the... Uh, the thing is, only Mordrin has the, has the proper it's animatronic. Yeah. yeah. But even he keeps forgetting. He keeps forgetting to turn it on a bit like Loki played Zeke. I think, do, you think, do you think he's pumping it with his own hand? <laughs> In... Yeah. I shouldn't come. I shouldn't admit this next bit because um, it just makes Ooh. me look like I was an idiot when oh, I was. sounds good. When I was ten, watching this, but I remember thinking for some reason that episode three cliffhanger in Interested Four, where the Doctor's faced with the dilemma of losing his upcoming regenerations. I think the re that my excuse is that I was coming to the point where I was becoming a real fan. I was really reading up on the history of the program, and getting very into it. And a little knowledge is a dangerous thing. And I remember turning to my parents and saying, "I've worked out where this story is going." He's going to give away his remaining lives and he is going to become human and then he'll stay on Earth again, you see, because just like the third Doctor used to stay on Earth and that's where they're going to go. They're the going to change the program. Yeah, he'll be back with the Brigadier like in the yeah, Earth. I think that's, my parents were very interested in that theory, yeah. I seem to remember. Mm. Mm. Pat you on the head. Uh, yeah, with some force. <laughs> and if only they'd done that, then the program wouldn't have been cancelled in two years' time. Mm-hmm. What if his parents had... this is one of the this is one of the stories that does a lot to reinforce the whole 12 regenerations limit I'm trying to think what happens in the the interim because obviously it comes in a deadly assassin Mm -hmm. do we get much coverage of it in the the meantime good question is it even is it even clear in the deadly assassin that he means 12 regenerations 13 bodies or is is this the first time they make the distinction between those two oh good question well the... i have read an article on this in the past and somebody's done the research for us but uh... <laughs> i always when i was younger thought for some reason that the last body was not a fully working one i don't know why i always thought that the the master looked the way yeah. he did you thought that he, was his he... 13th body yeah. not his 14th body i thought maybe. his final regeneration was just like when your battery's running out and it doesn't work very well <laughs> And so you just end up as a, a crispy mess. But um, Well, you know, back to Mordrin and his mates again. Uh, that could have been... What I thought you were going to say about younger misunderstandings. Oh. When Mordrin turns around and his head's spaghetti, it's so weird that that's, that that's right, that that's normal. Because the whole thing is about mutation and disfiguration in the machine. First of all, it burnt into a crisp. And, and they're all worried about all mutations and everything going wrong. And so I've I've always been bewildered by the fact that he turns around and his brains on show, and then you meet all his mates and all their brains are on show, and I it it's just confusing to me. It was confusing then, confusing now. Yes, and, and what's supposed to have happened between when we first see him lying on the floor, and although he's in a bit of a state, his brain is where it should be, hmm. and the next the scene. Restorative properties of the TARDIS, right, returned him to his natural form. And made well, his he says, grow back. He, he, yes. <laughs> he, he says the atmosphere of the TARDIS. Right. right. So his natural form is he, largely humanoid. His natural, yeah, his natural form is a bloke with spaghetti on his head. Right. It's humanoid with, with an exposed brain. Yes. So the exposed brain is not part of the mutations that we've heard so much about. That's my understanding, yeah. and that's what this is confuses nonsense, me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what happens when you're in a state of grace, is it? <laughs> Still, the music's good. Okay, so when I wrote my notes for this, yeah. the largest section I had was on the music, and I Go pared on. it right down. I mean, I don't have anything particular to say, except I hate it. 
Yeah, yeah, so do I. It's 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 horrible. It's ill judged. It's distracting. It's too noisy. It cues on things that don't need music. It's horribly dated, and I think it's the worst thing about the story. And I I was watching it today, thinking it would be fun to take some um, Dudley Simpson music from something else he's done, like Blake Seven, which hits a lot of the uh, Tom Baker era notes, and put that in instead and see how this story felt because. Um, it gets off to a bad start with the uh, the infamous jaunty car music, doesn't it? Thankfully, that's about as bad as it gets. But it's so distracting yeah. and it's so inappropriate, and it and it undercuts any sense of of intrigue and jeopardy because it's all you're thinking about is what am I hearing? Do you not do you not even like the flashback music? That's all right, but it's just it's just pervasive. Hmm. I mean, yeah, the flashback music's all right, but. It, it, there's just an over-reliance on it. it, it if there was maybe 50% as much music in the episode. And the mm. funny thing is, one of the most effective scenes is when the Brigadiers finally meet. And it's one of the few scenes with no music. And mm. it's just got the, the, the 1983 Brigadier counting down and the sound effect of the computer gets louder. And you have that sense of inevitability because we've been told repeatedly how bad it is if the two Brigadiers meet and the Doctor's about to die. And it's amazing. There's no music. And it's a beautiful bit, and I love it. And you just think, how much more of this story would be improved if Paddy Kingsland just piped down? I tend to think his his music is even less successful with the with the present day with the you know present day Earth stories. It just seems ludicrous there. Mm. Sometimes works in the futuristic ones. This this score for Frontios is very similar to this. Didn't he do Frontios, and that really it, works? It really works very well, and it's yep, yeah, and it's very similar. But he's not got any. There's no ill judged comedy moments. So he doesn't get his guitar out. Like, is it the Goblins or Cashfable where he's doing his? Oh, the Wawa guitar. I mean, that is a terrific over. piece of music, to be fair. But uh, I'm not sure I want it in Doctor Who. <laughs> and I seem to remember Full Circle bit working well as well. So I don't know quite why it's so up and down. Mm. But on here and on the Visitation and so on. Less so. so. So how come we were so convinced that unit stories happened in the 1980s when nobody actually mentions any, any dates whatsoever in the whole of the Pertwee era? Well, it's... well go on. <laughs> no, you, you tell us. Oh, I mean... <laughs> there's, there's an awful lot of near-future technology, and I think the, the biggest example is in the invasion. I mean, it's all about near-future yeah, technology. Yeah. You can't say the invasion is set in the year it was made. So you've got to add a couple of years, and then you probably keep adding a couple of years, and then you've got that in the back of your mind until, I think the two main things are female Prime Minister in Terror of the Zygons, which has to be Thatcher. I could appreciate that's retrospective, but that, that was not, it, it was an in-joke, but it was done yeah. as, a, as a possibility. But also, then uh, Pyramids of Mars. Sarah says she's from 1980, so that date. That's the that's the biggest, and in my opinion, the most important. That's one. that dates the Time Warrior. Everything everything else is completely arguable. We, yeah. I think it's I think it's more, well, frankly, that fans grew up reading behind the scenes interviews, knowing that the production team had intended the Pertwee years to be set in the future. Mm. But when you look at the on-screen evidence, 99% of it is clearly set. They've got, you know, they've still got um, pre-decimal currency. They've isn't it a bit kind of strange though? I mean, so thinking about Sarah, because I mean, if I if I've disappeared off off in a time machine now, where would I would I say, oh, I'm from 2021, or would I say I'm from 1967, or would I? I don't know. I mean, what what why is 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 1980 the last time yeah, that she was in, or was it? Well, the fact, yeah, I mean, there there are options, but the, both those options that you mentioned are from the past. 
yeah. If she's, she, you're saying that she would be from 1980, 1980 would at, at the earliest be yeah, when yeah. she was born, and at the latest mm. be when she left Earth, I, I which think would still be a problem. I think anyone would say the year they thought it is. So I, I think, yeah. like, if, if I was whisked off into time and space today and had a series of adventures and was to later complain about the Earth being ruined, I would say, oh, <laughs> well, I missed the Earth from 2021. I'm from 2021, and it wasn't so ruined. And I wouldn't say I'm from 1979. That... Because that doesn't feel real. I, I don't remember the year I was born. That's that mm. feels totally illogical. Sarah Jane is quite a lot is more like the New Who companions than any other classic companion because she keeps getting going back to Earth and presumably time yeah, is progressing true. in mm. real time mm. out, outside the TARDIS. So she feels anchored still for some reason anchored in 1980. Mm. But she can't have been. She's from 1976, so she's an idiot. She's delusional. <laughs> I'm sure okay. somebody somewhere has written yeah, a yeah. short story that explains this discrepancy hmm. in a literal way, as opposed to all the um, wink-nudge uh, attempts we've had more recently. Very good. Well, there's the unit dating to controversy to dealt with. Perhaps there's a missing episode in between. For, look, look, for my money, uh, it's, it's amazing how it divides people. People do get quite uptight, don't they? Everyone is, is, is either a 1970s or 1980s person, and... There have been some horrendous battles fought at the Fitzroy Tavern over this. <laughs> <laughs> this point of great theological import. For me, I'm going to contradict myself here. Because normally with Doctor Who, you have to make so many allowances for the fact that it's a production, of a work of fiction. Things that look a bit... Sutik didn't really have a, a hand on his cushion. and <laughs> Just to pick one at random. And things are... All of those... <laughs> every single location we ever went to did have a fourth wall. Unlike mm. the the one that we're presented with. So when I say that, these things are clearly the 70s. It's the 70s with some technology that the real 70s didn't have, mm. as opposed to an 80s, which with, which looked exactly like the 70s in every respect, apart from the occasional bit of technology, you know? It's got yeah. to be one or the other. So while it's a production artefact that everything looks contemporary when it wasn't supposed to, it's enough to convince me that that's when they were supposed to be and Maudrin, for me, trumps Sarah Jane's hallucination about having come from, from the 80s. But does it does it really matter? Does it really matter? It must do, otherwise I wouldn't have just said all that. I, I think the point, for me, the argument comes out of frustration at the decisions made rather than, rather than arguing over which is right. It's more a, an argument resulting from the fact that somebody made the decision to create the argument and that's the frustration is that is that i think it was relatively clear yeah. up until Mordrin undead mm. made us ask the question and that is just bloody mindedness on john nathan turner's part and it didn't need to be like that and it's just a contempt for the source material yeah the problem is though that even if they hadn't bollocks it up then it would not still be all nice. It would not be nice and simple now. No, but it wouldn't be any worse. The two things, the two things I would point out are that Doctor Who is not set in the real world from the very beginning. It's been yeah. set in a world of more advanced technology now. It's just yes, they've set it in a few years ahead, but when you get to that point, the reality's never caught up, mm. and this has not been fixed by the the new series. As they only made this worse because mm. they keep taking a, stepping a foot into creating that world. The contemporary world now that we live in is not the future world depicted in the classic series where people are going to, not just because we're not going to Mars, but because 
humanity is not aware of the existence of alien life. They have not had multiple encounters. And the, that glib line in Remembrance of the Dance doesn't explain it. The new series has had to brush all that under the carpet several times, sometimes mm. on screen with cracks in time that are supposed to erase the whole of humanity's memories of the first, the last four years of the programme. But it's happened again since then, hasn't it? Wasn't there another reset at... There seems to have been an unspoken reset at the start of the latest Chibnall era, when yet again nobody remembers the Daleks, <laughs> which they should. So uh, my point is, we know now is what year stories are supposed to be setting because they helpfully tell us. They often put it on the screen, but that doesn't make it an easy credit to consistent timeline, which I think is the thing we're we're after. Mm. We're not yeah. after each discrete story to tell us when it is apparently set. We're after a t- we're after a timeline that makes some sort of narrative sense and. You can write a book about it, and it has a forward flow. Yeah, and so that's guess, been, bro- that's been broken say... many times by the outside the strict world of the unit stories. Yeah, and I guess also what you're saying is that Enemy of the World doesn't really feel to be in the same time as the thing with the spider set in Sheffield. Indeed, if, if in fact those were the same year, which they probably were. And it's only going to get the worse, isn't it? Is set in 2020. Yeah, according to the trailer. Hmm. I'm not saying, I'm not demanding somebody does something about this. I no. just wanted to say that, don't worry, guys. I think that there's a big, obviously, there's a big chunk of that by virtue and nature of telling futuristic stories you can't avoid. But it goes back to what I was saying about the, the frustration comes from things that are avoidable. And it's avoidable for them to, according to Ian Levine, just listen to Ian Levine, who said, that'll cause a whole load more problems. And they could have just not done that. I mean, how critical was the Silver Jubilee to that story? It wasn't. It's a line, isn't it? Yeah. I think I think if this was being made now, the production team would make the same decision. And I think it's because I can hear Russell T. Davis or Moffat saying, yeah, I wanted to anchor it in a big public event. And because these scenes are set in the past, I wanted it to be a, scene, a, a public event that the viewers would... Re- that actually was in the past, for the point of view of my, my viewers. If the past scenes were set at Charles and Diana's wedding, and the future and the present scenes were set four years in the future, which is some, what you would have had to do, for, you know, to shift it, or the least you'd have had to do to stick with the yeah. Sarah Jane eighties version, then people be, get very confused about what was supposed to be past and present and future. So I think they would have. Is it, I think any showrunner in any era would have said, this will make it clearer for the audience, the mainstream audience, than doing than sticking to the show's internal chronology. But that's that's the irony, isn't it? Is that this episode wasn't made for the mainstream audience. It was made yep. to, to wallow in fan. It's trying to do two things at once. We, we've, we've, we've hit the point at which I think we, we need to shift gear. Yeah, and I think, it's a slight I mean, problem because I thought I'd have more to say about uh, human nature. So Yes. <laughs> this could, yeah, oh, so, well. so, I mean, I'll give you five minutes to, to finish this one off. But I think that we oh, God, no, don't, don't. Let's move on. The only the, the last thing I'll say is that the the fifth doctor has no duty of care for the for young Brig, does he? Basically, they ditch him in 1977, <laughs> faster than you can imagine. Knowing and they've they, ruined his life for six yeah, years. Exactly, and say, well, thank goodness we got rid of him. You know, we don't we, we don't have to worry about that anymore. Some other poor sod can look after him. Um, and then they also dump the, the old Brig off as well and, and, and disappear without a, a care really. So it, it, it's all a bit of a, a perfunctory ending. Any road, human nature. Human nature, written by Paul Cornell, uh, from the book of the same name, uh, although that, of course, was a new adventure with the Seventh Doctor and Ace. 
It's from Series 3. It's directed by Charles Palmer. Paul Cornell is almost exactly the same age as me, so I guess that means he's going to have a sort of similar memory of the sort of same stories about the same time. This is a, a, a story that's, that's also set in, in a public school, but it's a very different kind of public school. It's, I guess it's set in history rather than contemporary. Um, and it's, and it's, it's a very different kind of story. I mean, who, who wants to have a crack at it? It's brilliant. Isn't it, just? I think the first episode is, is damn near perfect. And the second episode is not far off. Mm-hmm. It's beautifully balanced. The human drama is pitch perfect. The performances are amazing. Jessica Hines is wonderful. Harry Lloyd as Baines. I don't know how he's not gone on. I mean, I know he was in things, but he's a, he's a lead if ever I saw one. Rebecca Staten, I thought she was absolutely fantastic. The structure is superb. It weaves all its elements together. I was I was struck. I'd, I'd kind of forgotten how well the themes all worked about war, pacifism, cowardice, all of the characters' stories paid off. I was I really, really enjoyed watching it today. There's a few slight issues in second episode, but nothing major. I was a bit, a bit disappointed when the character of the Doctor returned. I really enjoyed <laughs> David Tennant underplaying rather than his usual scenery chewing. Yeah, I think... All the, of all the times that they've um, written in a, an opportunity for the lead actor to play something different and show their range, I think this is probably the most impressive, isn't it? You felt real it's gen- sympathy. It's genuinely for him. another character yeah. rather than just a gimmicky. And he had thoughts and opinions that were different to the Doctor, and he resented the Doctor, and that's so interesting. I thought that was beautifully played, beautifully written. Yeah, um, like you say, the second episode lives up to the first, which wasn't always isn't always the case with the two parties nowadays. And maybe it's because it comes from a book, mm. which so it had that benefit of having been very strongly plotted to start with. Whereas perhaps sometimes, mm. when something's been written for TV, I don't know, <laughs> the temptation is to. Who has read the book? I have, but um, I borrowed Big Finish writer Rob Morris, no relations, copy. So I don't have it myself, so I couldn't go back and check it. So I was going to. I was hoping one of you had read it more recently and could answer some questions for me. I've sadly never read it, and I considered it, but I didn't. Sadly, I think this was just after I dropped out of reading them. Richard, I know for a fact, hasn't read it because he said it has Ace in it, doesn't it? Has Benny Summerfield. It's Benny, yeah. But, Very uh... good. <laughs> well, gracious I, I, I think I read the one directly <laughs> before it. So. <laughs> so there's none of that unrequited love business with, with Benice. Of course, I can't remember. I, I like I couldn't go and read it, but I suppose I could have at least have read a summary. I was going to read so, the summary, but um... yes. So it's set not in a school, but a college for training military officers. So it has a slight advantage in that the themes are woven slightly more tightly. But uh, but because of the setting, 1913, it's certainly not. Um, overly contrived is it to keep the anthem for doomed youth angle so yes that's one of the main changes but possibly not particularly um serious it's changed to a school rather than a college i have no idea why (laughs) that was done has anyone done any research to look into the changes that were made it simplifies the book there are some major characters that are removed Um, i think it's i think it's interesting only that in 2007 when this came out it wasn't such a big deal but of course now 
our country is run by public school boys. It, it sort of feels that the, there's a whole narrative, uh, you know, in, in watching it that kind of feels a lot more relevant to to, to today than it did back then. I was going to say something very similar that, the, you know, believe it or not, when this was made, we lived in something that rather more closely resembled a meritocracy without <laughs> wishing to get without wishing to get it too much into the politics. But these people in their little penguin suits were largely it was it was like a historical curiosity. Mm. People viewed it as and, and then we've now we've had a decade of being run by them. Once again, they have resurrected themselves. I wonder if, if it was made now, whether Russell would lean into that, whether he'd... Um, Paul Cornell definitely would. Crank up the uh, misbehaviour and make references to the Dullingford Club or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The other thing that's interesting, obviously we'll come on to this again in terms of this, this sort of elegiac, elegiac, however you pronounce it, mm. kind of thing. This was made, you know, interestingly, it was before, obviously before the, you know, state of bleeding, obviously before the centennial yeah. commemorations of the of the First World War. And at, a, and at a time when when the last of the veterans were actually, you know, the last of the First World War veterans, and I was just looking how he patched died in 2009. So this was the, this was the time when it was in, in the public conscience that the very last people who had actually fought in the war were dying off mm-hmm. and i think even even then we possibly had a different different view of it from you know remembrance day and stuff like that than than perhaps we have again you know now that it's become part of this kind of cult you know being embroiled into this culture war mm. poppy you know poppy fascism kind of thing i thought we probably wouldn't have that end scene now it's too divisive yeah which is sad really but yeah. That's where we are. It's been weaponized. Mm. Although First World War may be slightly less than Second, but yeah, but I, I I know what you mean. But I think you couldn't do it without yeah. You know, you'd open a big old debate mm. about it, which you, you know, at that time you could yeah you you didn't you weren't really opening a can of worms by addressing that. Mm. And lovely one one other thing I did did notice that was a, a lovely touch, and I I didn't actually take it so. I did a double take because when they when I saw the poster for the dance, the or the invitation for the dance thing, and my initial thing I, I saw sort of saw November twenty um, November nineteen thirteen. I thought, hang on, is there some anniversary October anniversary related gag there? But of course, then the it's actually that the that the dance is on and the events of that night are it's the eleventh of November. 1913. So it's all oh, right. It's like the the pre the preemptive armistice day. I thought you were going to point out that the uh, typography on the sign was anachronistic because the font hadn't been invented in 1913. You geek. <laughs> 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 but yeah, in general, I'd I just echo what everyone else has said. It's it's absolutely superb story. I th- I think possibly. One of the absolute best two passes, certainly that the, that the series is. I mean, this is a, you know, series three is my favourite series of New Who in general. Anyway, and I think this is probably you know one of the best two passes in that it actually manages to be a coherent two parter, and it doesn't have to pull any pull any tricks of let's have a sudden change of pace, let's do a yep. jump for let's do a yep. jump forward in time, mm. let's do anything else. It's just it's 
it's got the right amount of plots. It's got a subject matter that is that has got the moral heft, as it were, and you know it's 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 a weight, weighty subject matter that deserves to be a two-parter. Because mm. that's the thing. Good Doctor Who stories work on multiple levels, and it it has the it has a theme. And even Good Doctor Who stories don't always have a theme. They they persist through other methods. And uh, this is really nice that it, it gives you something to chew over. The the Doctor's failure to to pull the trigger against the the Scarecrows, and uh, him obviously questioning his his nature, I suppose. Hmm. There's all kinds of interesting stuff, uh, and it's nice to to just sort of be asked questions rather than be told what to think. And there's a lot of good stuff. It's curious, isn't it, that that this and Blink. And case of Androzani, a lot of what are considered the best of Doctor Who are atypical Doctor Who stories, because human nature is as is as unusual as they come. Mm-hmm. Mm. And Doctor Who is always kind of, whilst it is a very varied format, it is also often a very well trodden template. And some very templated stories are are, are pretty good and enjoyable. But it's the ones that break all the rules and do something really weird and confusing. And so if you were to tell people what a great Doctor Who serial is, hmm. show them Blink, what well, hasn't really got the Doctor in, or show them Case of Androzani, where everyone dies and the Doctor <laughs> the just Doctor doesn't affect any positive change. It's just it's just drug dealers and machine guns and sadness from start to finish. And somebody will come to you and say, well, I didn't realise Doctor Who was such a pessimistic and <laughs> depressing series. Well, so yeah, yeah. so uh, yeah, Human Nature, another one in the oddball category, doing extremely well. For well. me, that, this entire six, six episode outrun, the, you know, the tail end of series three, mm. it's, you know, and I, I, I really like the Master Trilogy yeah. that ended as well. I mean, Utopia has its shonky moments, but is kind of made up for by the by the third act, it feels like, and then, and then I have a lot, lot of time for Sound of Drums and Last of the Time Lords, which again are very, very far from typical. Yeah, I was going to say that as well. That it is one of the best runs of stories ever, and I hadn't really spotted it, that all of them are atypical, so it's cheating really, isn't it? If it stuck, <laughs> stuck a typical Dolce story in there, it would have broke, broken the spell. <laughs> Any idiot can produce a, a absolute work of art just by being... <laughs> By being different. I mean, first ten minutes, fifteen minutes, twenty minutes is of episode two. I suppose is technically a base under siege story, but uh, it doesn't persist, and it's not really the point. It's it's so difficult to say to talk. I thought I was going to have a lot to say about this, but because it's so good, but it's difficult to find things to say hmm. when things are half the things I want to say are by comparing it to stories that don't work, that do similar things that don't work as well. I mean, you said how well paced it was, Gavin. It is. It's. It's emblematic to me of um, some one interesting thing about the pacing of New Who. There are a lot of single episode stories that don't work for me because they try and cram too much story in. But then some t- some of the um, two-parters don't add any extra plot. Mm. They tell a story that's barely any more complex than a, sing- than a one-parter, but just go into it with more depth, which I think is why, over and over again, viewers at the time would say they found them more satisfying. Mm. They rarely, uh, I suppose until Moffat takes over, he starts um, <laughs> doubling and tripling the amount of plot the longer the story gets. But um, here, 
this is unusually linear really there aren't even any subplots it mm -hmm. just allows us to get into this to tell this one story really well and bring the themes out the big themes and the small themes where it's just about two people i or... suppose if if something's skillfully enough written then you end up with subplots that don't feel like subplots because ultimately mm. you can i mean yes it's it's a, it's an alien invasion story but but that's not really the story it's about the the doctor's love affair and the problems that that causes for the alien invasion so you kind of have an a and a b plot but they're they're not separated yeah exactly subplots don't have to take place in separate strands they can yeah. you can have all your characters stuck in a lift and still yeah. have multiple subplots if the inter interactions are it's not like one of those horrible so... sitcom b stories where they don't have anything for one character to do, so they go off and have a wacky side adventure. It's, and that's it's... why we don't end up with everyone splitting up and mm. running around the village, mm. or running around the, or just running around the corridors in the school, to no, to frenetic no, lack mm. of avail, as as with Maldrum. Yeah, I mean, it's almost in this story as if the Doctor's being deliberately cruel to to Martha because he. He could hide anywhere in the cosmos, but he finds he finds a place to hide that's going to make it awkward for him, and 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 gives her a pretty unpleasant role to have to undergo for for, yes. for several months, and then he goes and falls in love with somebody else when he knows that she's uh, in love with him, and you know so that's sort of problematic as well, and and yeah, I mean in in the end she has a thoroughly miserable time for as long as it lasts, Does and yet she then. <laughs> Uh, she sort of seems happy enough when he comes, when he sort of springs back into his normal character. Does he know that she's got the hots for him? Because um, at the end, when she admits it and then hopes that he won't mm. remember her saying that, the implication is that that he's been blissfully unaware of this throughout the season so far. I wasn't the biggest <laughs> fan of that story, and I think it pays off here, but because I do love the fact yeah. that two two moments. I mean, I I do for the first time feel sorry for Martha when. She gets a lot of corny lines, Martha. and uh, But the line, you had to fall in love with a human, it wasn't me. I remember rolling my eyes a bit at the time, but now I thought that was, I just really oh, I, my I heart went say, out for her. I did, and, I did roll my eyes a little bit because it didn't need saying. Cause, yeah, uh, there's I, that. Because you that. say it in your head. Yeah. You, mm. Just before she says it, you say, ah, oh, but it wasn't you. And then she says, oh, but it wasn't me. Mm. And you but, think if, if you're saying it to yourself, the character doesn't need to. Mm. Better, but, than, better than that is the fact that the doctor hasn't anticipated that he might fall in love. He's lived off his <laughs> yeah. ex exhaustive list of things that might happen. Yeah. And and John Smith's horror. Well, you think when he's trying to understand why this man that, that he's been asked to sacrifice his life yeah. to bring back this man, the doctor, and everything he's hearing about him just makes him think, why why is this man worth more yeah. than me? Mm. He sounds awful, <laughs> and it makes us think as well, doesn't it? Yeah. And uh, tenants the tenth doctor is the one to do this with because he is. I, also, I suppose it works uh, well with the seventh doctor in a different way, but um, ten is getting into that megalomaniac. He's the he's the Jim he? Kirk of Doctor Who, isn't he? He's got he's got a girl <laughs> in every port sort of thing. A girl in every fireplace. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's I wasn't really thinking that. Um, so bearing that in mind, that he is a bit kissy wissy for a doctor. Mm -hmm. Why does he not think he might fall in love? Because now that's the point. None of these were romantic relationships. Yes, I suppose that's it. He, he hasn't ever fallen in love. He doesn't. He? he doesn't see it that way. No, he has. He's fallen very in love a few times with with good-looking ladies. 
you put a face, Gav, when I mentioned the Seventh Doctor? Uh, something else I said? No, I was thinking of a really eye. unpleasant, different image that wasn't Sylvester McCoy uh, well, the, kissing Jessica Hines. I'm fairly sure the love story isn't in the book, but again, I, I didn't bother to check. Joan Redfin is a suffragette and part of a slightly larger ensemble cast in mm. the novel. But it's good that they changed it because it means we can have both in the continuity without without upsetting the sort of people who would worry about that, like me. Was there a sordid romance in the book between the Doctor and Joan? I think so, yes. There is, is there? Okay. I'm misremembering. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I can only say, according to what I read on the summaries, trying to read up on it, yes, the, the romance subplot is... But that seems like an odd thing to... It's a new yeah. it's a new series is Sharda, isn't it? Where you've got sort of several different versions in different media, mm. with mm. different doctors, and you know we're happy enough. <laughs> I can't remember how, what what the scientific explanation for the doctor rewriting his DNA is in, but it's not a chameleon arch. I know that the aliens are different, so that is another reason why we can have both these coexisting. They're the obertides, which have some very interesting properties. I think they they reproduce in little pods. I think. Mm. They, which will be handy for Mordrin, they, um, their physical like things like clothes and things are an extension of themselves, I believe. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And apparently that was carried over to the early drafts of the scripts. They were going to have Martha become suspicious of Jenny when she recoiled in pain at having something spilt on her handbag or something oh, That's good. like that. They are very nasty in the way that... And then they decided it wasn't visual. Sorry? Uh, I was just saying the, the villains are very nasty in the way that Paul Gunnell... Uh, villains in his books always are mm. they're very witty they're very cruel mm. <laughs> and uh and just generally scary and unpleasant and that carries through there's definitely russell t davis has said i believe that he rewrote a lot of this has he said this publicly he must have done yes uh, I... well so yeah i believe he <laughs> I, I think it kind of comes I, <laughs> it kind of comes from something where someone was bemoaning people yeah i think i think he was Bemoaning the fact that people love this, slagged off it, some, some of his, and that it won so many awards. It won an award, yeah. mm. and it, possibly the suggestion was Russell might have had perhaps shared in that written one award. or two lines. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, we'll leave it there. But the point <laughs> is that, uh, regardless of how much he wrote, I don't. Uh, Paul Cornell's influence does shine through, and not not just obviously because it's all his, all the ideas come from him. But I think the tone comes from him. And Russell, of course, has always said that, hasn't he? That he was very good at keeping... Even if he rewrote every word, he would keep the tone and the intent intact. Unless it was shit. <laughs> <laughs> well, according, from what I can read from the summaries, I know this is something where it does feel like, OK, that's something that they did rather better on, that they, in the book, you know, the Doctor just decides, goes to some genetic manipulator guy... Because he's unable to, because Benny is grieving for, for her um, boyfriend who died in who died in the previous book, the knight. Right, I've forgotten Sanctuary, that. Sanctuary is the one that comes before this. Yeah, and it ends with ends with Benny's boyfriend dying, and the doctor, yes, at least according to the summaries, decides to have himself changed into human because he can't understand grief on a human level. So it's a sort yes. of empathy exercise. Yes, it is. It is. A- Starting from a completely different place, isn't it? Yeah. Mm, so I think I think folding it into the the threat plot. Let's not let's not call one the A plot and one the B plot. But I think I think unifying the two rather than having two separate things is is a smart is a smart move and an improvement. 
in terms of tightening it up so to yeah. fit into yeah. 90 minutes of television. I don't think it's impossible to do to take the original idea and do it on television, but it's a bit cerebral, isn't it? A bit conceptual, and I think it would take longer, and you might risk losing mm-hmm. your casual audience. So, so young Timmy Latimer and his yes. his sort of curious sense. I mean, do, do, does that ever get explained? It seemed to me that it was a bit, a bit I was, difficult I thought to that follow. Was, I was waiting for the explanation and no. didn't didn't come. That was one of my small grumbles. Hmm. Was that that just went by the wayside? But I kind of don't mind. No, no. I mean, it's okay. We we can have unexplained. It's true. I mean, I didn't mind. I'm just I'm also surprised it doesn't get a. Yeah. What's his face in Planet of the Spiders? There's never any. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. The the ESP exists in Doctor Who. So mm. Mm. on the other hand, let's get Thomas Brady's thanks to back if we can afford him. Do a do a follow up with him now. Why not? Yeah. He was very good in Queen's Gambit. He was. TV's Thomas Brody Sangster. Mm. Still with his little baby face, even though I was <laughs> thinking he must be well into his 30s now. But he's t- he, st- I st- he still looks about 12 every time I see him. <laughs> and down the shops every time I see him. He... <laughs> <laughs> hmm. there's, a, there's, a, there's also two characters in this, sort of, well, no, one mentioned and one actually in it who've, who've served in the Boer War. So, I mean, I suppose that's a relatively recent event for the people, for the characters in the story. But it, 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 I don't know. I mean, it's, it's a war, I suppose, that people probably volunteered to take part in. It's not, I don't, I don't perhaps know my history well enough. I hadn't imagined it had, it had had such a large impact on the populace in general. Never mind real life. Let's talk about the science fiction. This chameleon arch, right, mm. which is invented as an alternative, as a, I don't know, a, a more visual Mm. way of getting across the, the science fiction mechanism the docs are changing that's sort of a, a longer life than you would have thought isn't mm. it? hasn't it because first Russell brings it back in the two stories later well yeah. it's a brilliant conceit to come up with it and then he, and then he sees say, there's some extra potential yeah. in it yeah. mm. for his master reveal and then it seems to have had quite this. in fact this story in general seems to have had quite an impact on Chibnall because mm. the roof doctor is hiding is it explicitly a chameleon arch? It's not in a fob watch, but every yeah. most yeah. I think a chameleon. pretty much everything, all the same iconography is used mm-hmm. to explain how she's been hidden. And then in the first episode of the season finale, the most recent season finale, we get pretty much a, there's a subplot which is pretty much a retelling of human nature, isn't it? About the it has some of the same atmosphere. The chap in Ireland now. I'm, yeah. I'm going to ask somebody to remind me what on earth all that came to because I can't remember who who he was. But the bloke who grows up it's working a, it's in the an allegory, in a, isn't a it? rural police. Yeah, the suggestion is that it's the doctor's distorted memories of his undercover work for um, Celestial Intervention Agency. No, they call something else. What are they called? Them, anyway. Mm. Yes. Yeah. But yes, you know, it is. It's certainly got similarities there, hasn't it? And the uh, thing about Gallifrey being a place in Ireland. Yes. Mm. It, it is mostly predicated on that one line. Yes. Now I come to think of it. One thing I put in my notes. Yeah. Drama is satisfying when characters aren't stupid. <laughs> <laughs> and you think that would be a fairly straightforward rule for scriptwriters to follow. And it is so rarely observed that it really jumps out when characters, both good and bad, are intelligent and make reasoned deductions that don't leave you screaming at the television. 
And the villains do it throughout. Family of Blood are, are on the ball and it works really well because they feel like a threat because, mm. as you said, Paul, they're, they're intelligent and the, their dialogue is, is witty and interesting. And they feel like a worrying bunch because they're, they're obviously fairly smart and that works really well. And that's such a simple thing is to make your, your antagonist a genuine intellectual threat or at least not an imbecile because so many Doctor Who villains are, are confounded by them just missing obvious things. And the same was true of Martha. The, the, the scene in particular that stood out, I mean, she's, she's on the ball all the way through this story. Although she's making she's making slightly ill-judged decisions in difficult circumstances. But by and large, everyone behaves like a normal human being. And that really... <laughs> it, 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 it's, it's really striking when you're not screaming in frustration at a piece of drama because people are acting like you think, that, well, that's what I'd do in that situation. And the, the, the bit where, uh, where Martha sits down with her former colleague and her former colleague is being a bit weird hmm. and it's the kind of weirdness that nine times out of ten in doctor who the protagonists don't notice yeah Rose and, and, Mickey, and yeah. somebody's being weird <laughs> and they go are you all right today mate? <laughs> you go, yes i am fine i have not been possessed by an alien menace all right okay i can make a cup of tea then <laughs> But Martha does that beautiful thing where she just throws some weird stuff. Shall I, shall I put some pork chop in the in the teapot? And uh, and her friend goes, "Yes, that'd be lovely." It just doesn't need explaining, and mm. it's just such a simple thing that in a in a more ordinary script that would be so overwritten and so overexplained. And it's just a nice little subtle detail, and I liked it. And there's a lot of that all the way through. Is people behaving like you would hope people behave? And it's such a basic requirement of TV drama. And it so often fails to be met. So it was lovely. And, and, and the dialogue is genuinely really sharp pretty much all the way through. And, and there's a lot of minor characters that make some really interesting... I really like the bit where the... Uh, is he called the headmaster? And he bursts in and he says, what are you all up to? Yes. And that's a really nice scene because, again, in, in other more standard things somebody would fail to properly explain and yes. and he'd say oh this is ridiculous and and john smith would stumble over his words and he'd say oh get rid of all this and and he'd say joan what's going on and joan wouldn't wouldn't back the doctor up and you'd be screaming in frustration yeah. but no people behave like you would hope people behave and it's just those notes of i'm really trying not to say verisimilitude but there Fairly. i've said it <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and, and I like the character of the headmaster because yeah, Pip Torrens, very good. Yeah, as you say, I mean, he's 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 got enough imagination to sort of see that maybe there's something going on that's that's definitely weird, but not kind of impossible. I mean, he then he, he falls over in the end simply because he's he isn't prepared to accept that a small girl could be a threat, but but you know, up to that point, you know, as you say, he's actually relatively intelligently and, yeah. and, and not and being it... a blimp. He's not a sympathetic character. We're not supposed to like him. No. He's representing all the things that uh, the subjects of this story are telling us we need to move away from. But, yeah, as you say, in lesser hands, this, he would have been written as an idiot or or made unreasonably objectionable. Mm -hmm. And and none of those things is true. I'm looking here at the cover of the book, mm -hmm. which um, <laughs> is a very arresting image of a schoolboy firing a machine gun. Uh, the doctor helping load the bullets. And it reminds me that that imagery is 
crucial is central to both both versions mm-hmm. and although it's we obviously know what it's implying that this is the presaging the future for these many of these boys but the specific imagery of schoolboys firing machine guns in a school does that come from the <laughs> the Lindsay Anderson film If I was going to say because now I've not seen that but I feel like I it's such an I feel like everybody knows the famous Lindsay Anderson's If with its famous climax of a machine gun fight in a boys public school so I'm always comparing things to If and suggesting pastiche you get in scripts and nobody ever takes me up on the offer has anybody else seen it or are we all just in the same position of knowing that it exists and I'm just wondering if these if these references go beyond the superficial because I can't I don't really know what it's about uh, you, you you picked the wrong bunch of people to have that. Giles of Giles started off very promisingly. By... No, I feel like it's a big big gap in my knowledge that I've never seen oh, it myself. But um, balls. But you certainly know? the yeah the whole thing with the machine gun and Malcolm McDowell looking very similar to to Baines and um, people like that is yes in the tiny collars. There must be a link because it's called if dot dot dot. Which presumably is a reference to Kipling's famous poem "If you can do X Y and Z, Bob's your uncle." Right. Yeah. That's Alan Partridge's paraphrase of if <laughs> by, uh, <laughs> for you missed. Literally the only reference that I have to that. <laughs> <laughs> if you do X, Y, and Z, Bob's your uncle. Yeah. <laughs> if that was in an Alan Partridge film, that would be one of those moments where I would be the only person in cinema who would laugh at that. <laughs> that, would be, that would be my level, and I would live to regret it. Well, good. And it is set back in the. I mean, that's set in the that is set in the sixties. That's contemporary. That film, rather rather than being historical, mm. yeah. and it's more to do with. I think it's teenage yeah. rebellion. Yeah, I think it's just a uh, a visual reference because it's a very striking idea, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. And it's never failed in any of the many contexts in which it's been pastiched. This is the only one. <laughs> So the the family of blood they they travel through all t- of time and space to find the doctor every seventy years, and then by accident they happen in the right place, mm. but then they sniff him out. Mm. But, but maybe they go to lots of places very quickly. But didn't they only have three months left yes. to yeah. live? I think there is a jumble in the uh, plotting. I mean, unless I've missed something. Yeah. Okay. Is the doctor hiding in the hope that if he just has hides for three months, yes. they'll be dead? Oh, that's, that's what he says. Over. Yeah. Which means that they're not travelling through time. After they, him. they are travelling. They are because they know. In which the case, yeah. <laughs> Why didn't they hop three months forward? Mm, because they definitely they know about 1914, so they're not from. That's it's, true. They um, say they've seen many. I believe they start off in 2007 as well. Right. So, Alien ah. 2007, but 2007... It's not explained was. how they find him, is it? Oh, well. I don't think so. Unless they are just very rapidly in a scattergun attempt, turning up places, having that a makes sniff. sense. They must be following the trail of his Well, time. I mean, they let's have... face it, he's, he always, he's always going to Earth, so I suppose it's a pretty <laughs> good bet, isn't it? They've got a stolen vortex manipulator. I know that. Hmm. That's, that's thrown in there as a line. I, th- I think my, my biggest problem with this story is is that and the ending because i don't feel that they marry up either in in their sort of moralizing or in their tone i mean you we're shown this this humble and compassionate john smith yeah and then we're given the doctor can 
to contrast with this, but the contrast is so outrageous because mm. he surely only had to outweigh their demise if he was waiting this three months. But instead of continuing, he concocts this plan to trap them in eternal torture. Yeah. And they would not otherwise have been eternal. They were no. seeking immortality through yeah. stealing Time Lord biology, which incidentally is a nice link back to Mordred Undead. Yeah, and indeed the Five Doctors, yeah. Yes. <laughs> but the ending seems so disproportionate to the compassion that we'd seen throughout the story. And also this reveal that he's endangered all these people. Yes. And that all these people have died for the sake of him just trying to spare the lives of these aliens and all these humans ended up dying instead. I mean, who knows how many people die. The bombing of the village I found surprisingly shocking because I didn't remember that at all. Mm. That's some fairly apocalyptic alien weaponry landing on the village. So mm. a lot of people died in this story and it was all for the sake of the Doctor not having to kill the family of blood. Mm. Because they say what his plan was was to was to be kind to them and not kill them they were just he was just going to wait out their three month expiry date and he decided instead instead of finishing them off to wait them out and that resulted in countless deaths and then he imprisoned them for all time anyway i mean it's a really jarring conclusion to an otherwise heartfelt story about what is the best in people and how to avoid conflict and there is another way it's a really, really weird ending, and I think that's a misstep. I don't want to say, but isn't that the point? But sort of, isn't that the... <laughs> I mean, you know, the fact that the Doctor is possibly being a coward by you know, <clears throat> by trying to duck his responsibilities of taking these creatures on, and we don't really get a picture of what, how, quite how dangerous they are, and whether whether he's trying to duck the feeling that he has to do this thing he's trying to he doesn't want to be responsible for their deaths so he'd rather imprison them forever or i don't know but certainly with regards to the the hypocrisy and so on and joan joan calls him on it you know in the, at, at the everybody end does anyway, with the, when he asks her to john smith well, yes, before he knows he's, the he's, doc so he's got he's got him he's got his number mm, and yeah. joan um, after she meets him and he is meant to be you know we are in this lonely god phase of the Yes, How we're but meant this, to interpret the doctor. Is this where it starts? Though? That's what I was going to ask. Is this is this a hangover from the No Second Chances? I'm that sort of a man from the Christmas Invasion, which has kind of mostly disappeared until now. He's not actually then been that sort of a man very much. No, true. And to, yeah. uh, this is uh, that resurfacing, or is it presaging where he's going to end up through the fourth series and beyond? Hmm. I'm unsure. Yes, it does seem to stick out a bit, really. Because it feels to me that the fourth, do sorry, the tenth Doctor's era starts and ends with him being getting a bit ahead, uh, carried away with himself, mm. doling out punishments, doling out justice as he sees fit from his elevated vantage point. But in, in the middle, where we are, mm. it does stick out a bit. I'd find those those series of of, of melodramatic punishments that he concocts mm. are really incongruous, because. I mean, he's got umpteen time tricks up his sleeve, mm. and they, they only had a yeah. three-month expiry date. I almost Just... feel like you're not supposed to take them literally, because we do hear about it in voiceover. Yeah. They're so... Um... Yeah, like the stuff of legend, almost. The, the, yeah. The... But they're being told to us by one of yes, the family indeed. of blood, so yeah. we There's know... Yeah, no suggestion it isn't true, but yeah. the way it's presented gives it a 
Yeah, it reminded me a bit of uh, the big finish, the Sandman. Then I always also thought that I'm reading of it at the time. I guess I guess on this thing too is is also isn't the Doctor taking revenge for you know isn't it he is being petty and he is taking revenge for the fact that he's been made to give up. You know, oh, yeah. there's, there's a there's a subtext of his. Perhaps he doesn't seem that bothered. <laughs> I intuited it, it that he was taking revenge at the fact he'd sort of been made to give up this this possibility of another life, and perhaps taking revenge for for John Smith's. Yeah, you know, I, I, I don't get that. I, mean, I think he's completely disinterested in the life of John Smith. Yep. He seems to have no regrets. It is could you so... change back? Yes. Are you going to? No. Nope. Nah. Got better things to do. Yeah, it's a bit like the opposite of um, Pyramids of Mars, isn't it? Because there he takes a guy who's almost eternal and ages him to death in a few seconds, and here he's taking people who would die in a few weeks, and uh, you know, uh, slowing down the aging process to such an extent that it's never going to happen, but they're still stuck in the corridor forever. It's certainly thought-provoking. But on the other hand, haven't we? And I guess we have to take this out of it's the old authorial intent, or you know, whatever. But hasn't during during the lockdown, various optional extras and things that we were we were given during lockdown uh, hasn't hasn't Cornell written a follow up or a sequel oh. to this that has some some redemption for I think at least the little girl in the mirror oh as a little short thirteenth Doctor story where wow. she releases her don't know has he I believe this oh. has been I believe this has been these and there's there's been certain what about a balloon certain <laughs> There's been certain things where we went a bit too, you know. The, That's very Moffat as well, isn't it? She's in. Him having gone too far. He imprisoned her in a mirror, every mirror. That's very Moffat. Mm-hmm. Somebody's yeah. been paying attention. Yes. I mean, she wasn't a little girl. That's the important thing to remember. But we shouldn't feel sorry for her because she's a little girl. Because she isn't. She's just in the. Yeah, she killed a little girl. Yeah, right. she's in the form yeah. of Pip, one. Pip Torrens made that mistake. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Have we got much more to say? Yeah, but I've forgotten it. <laughs> well, well, we'll 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 leave it for another two or three minutes to see, see if it comes back. I mean, it was dynamite, naturally. But yeah. I mean, and, maybe uh, we should gone. start trying to work out if there are any links between these two stories because I'm buggered if I can see any. <laughs> can I just one other thing I I did want to say about was, yeah um... I've remembered what I was going to say. Okay, well, we'll, we'll, we'll Giles first, and then and then uh, write Gav. it down, Gav. Right, fine. It's all about Giles. I like. <laughs> Well, I thought obviously Jessica Hines is fantastic throughout, but I, I liked some of the stuff with her character where she's. I, I thought it's interesting that there's moments where she is doctorish, and I, I thought with the, especially the bit where they go to the cottage and her thinking, you know, the, the fact that she has figured it out. So I thought that's quite. Right. It's quite dark. The reason that she knows that cottage might be safe, yeah, is because that's where the little girls, the little Very girl, true. used to live, and so so she's probably killed her parents. Yep. And um, I thought that's so quite a... She's definitely passed the test for companion. Mm. But she's not interested. <laughs> Gav. Uh, mother of mine, she gets crushed mm. into a collapsing galaxy. So as, a, as an astrologer, I was going to get you to talk about collapsing galaxies. Their scientific merit... I remember that was a sitcom and... by the Blake about Rentigo, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> So what's a collapsing galaxy? How do they work? And how would you be trapped and or killed by one? God knows. Uh, could be, could, <laughs> could be a quasar. Well, yeah. God, it could be. A, could just be a terminology for a quasar or something with a supermassive black hole. 
putting stuff in, I don't know, wouldn't put in the whole galaxy unless it got really out of out of hand. But in theory, obviously, I guess you would be. That's the question: Do you disappear into the black hole, or do you are you trapped forever on the event horizon? Probably one of RTD's rewrites that. Hmm. It could be dodgy because the thing is, in theory, you disappear into the black hole, but you're, you the last light from you is left on the event horizon. And you might meet Omega in the black hole. And you might meet Omega, yes. And unfold trouble erupts. Absolutely. He's an exiled Time Lord from the planet Gallifrey. <laughs> <laughs> she's a uh, she's a walker. <laughs> 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 She's a member of the family of blood. <laughs> when they met, it was Moida. <laughs> okay, Mrs. Omega. Well, we had we nearly had Mrs. Megos, didn't we? <laughs> <laughs> so, Gav, you, you you came up with with one of the links I I I got around the stealing the essence of Time Lord mm. uh, in order to gain immortality. So, so both both and, the and the family of blood. Go on. That it turned out that immortality was curse and not a blessing yeah mm. in both yeah. stories in and both I, I stories we're not talking about five doctors but yeah that that's the my point still stands yeah yeah in both stories the doctor tries to run away but he can't escape well he could escape if he if he actually didn't care too much about tegan and nissa but it turns out that he does so he can't run away both he ends up sacrificing himself uh, he's prepared to sacrifice himself mm. or yep. at least in both stories, oddly enough, there's this threat of him changing from a Time Lord to a human. Because mm. it may be metaphorical in Mordred Undead, but he's, he chooses to make, to make his fate sound more dramatic by saying, if I use up all my remaining regenerations, I won't be a Time Lord anymore. Mm. Which is... There you go. That's a funny one, isn't it? Mm. Spaceship so explodes in both of them. <laughs> yes. Mm, yep. Very true. And apparently, teaching at a boys' school can cause you to lose your memory. <laughs> Why wow. does the spaceship explode in Mordred Undead? I mean, the Doctor says the spaceship is is dying with them. Mm. <laughs> but you also think the whole quest was to die. Mm. If they could have, you know, rid, rigged the engines to explode, if that yeah. ship had blown to smithereens would they yeah would they but i suppose all, like well maybe the issue would have been that they, if, if it had done that they'd have still have been immortal but they wouldn't mm. have been in art deco luxury no it had just been bits floating around yeah. sadly mm. not not so much fun maybe presumably that's how the castrons or whatever they were rigged it to work so it would blow up afterwards mm. if they ever got yeah tidying up after themselves they, yeah they're very forward thinking <laughs> And then, I mean, I, this is perhaps a little bit more tenuous, but I've I've linked the famous Mordrin flashback sequence and the Journal of Impossible Things oh. in Human mm. Nature. No, nice. that's that's that. that's a very good one because it's the first decent flashback sequence we've had for a long time in Doctor Who, or ever <laughs> actually, I think. So, it's, mm. and also in, I remember, isn't it the first time we see any representation of old of prior Paul doctors McGann. in Human Nature? Oh, or is mm. it just Paul McGann? That was the thing everyone got very excited about. Have we seen any of them, or is it... But yes, the fact that Paul McGann was including was canon, because mm. some people thought there was a question mark over this. Definitely I think it was stir. any of them, but I'm not sure about that. I think, it, I think it's any of them, because we think... It is any of them, and it's just the, where the camera's pointing and the, what they, and the way they've edited it that means it privileges Spoon's 
and McGam. But they're all there, aren't they? If, yes. If you see the real thing. We get it in next do- in the next Doctor. The Spider-Man yeah. flashback, but that's, all, yeah. that's obviously after this. Yeah. Hmm. I don't think we've had it... My memory is that everyone got very excited and it caused a lot of discussion hmm. and a lot of anger and a lot of joy. <laughs> and... <sighs> ah, good days. <clears throat> when I started watching this today, when the title sequence kicked in, I was reminded of just how much I absolutely love Doctor Who at this mm-hmm. point in time. It was so exciting. It was the uh, it was the focus of my life for wow. for those years. Hmm. Yeah, I think it was a kind of you know there was a sort of pure sense of joy about it in in that era, and and it. I, I think across fa- fandom in general. I mean, th- you know, there were there were stories that people didn't like, and perhaps the Hobbity thing happening at the end of se- mm. series three was the first kind of real jarring note about uh, the, uh, across fandom. But on the whole, at the point that that uh, human nature went out, I think there was much less controversy across fandom uh, about the show than uh, in later eras. That was that was the thing. Is that what, watching today? I remember the pre-title sequence and the and then the title sequence, and I I was. That that feeling of excitement from that title sequence was so visceral, and part of me thought, "Is it all just a false memory? Is it all just the memory cheats?" And then the episode was so good, it was so good, it was so tightly written, it was so beautifully shot. Yeah, there were a handful of slightly dubious decisions, but nothing that ruined it, nothing mm. that really took me out of it. Apart from the Sydney and Verity, I take issue with that. But let's <laughs> let's leave that. And and I just sat thinking, it, it this is this wasn't a group hallucination. This is absolutely brilliant TV drama. And it's not it's not just good Doctor Who. It's good, brilliant TV drama. And no wonder the whole country talked about it. Like all my friends would talk to me about Doctor Who. All of the not wees would talk to me about Doctor Who during this era. 2007, 8, 9 was the absolute height and I was so cool to be in any way involved in the world of Doctor Who and I was very proud at the time to associate with the show and now more often than not people say I don't really watch it to mm. be honest and sad oh <laughs> how do we recover the ending to go for an... well I mean, I mean that, that, isn't that it it sort of feels to me like Elegaic. Feels like we've 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 hit we've hit the note. You know, it's just going to be how it is, isn't it? Yeah. Well, look. I mean, thanks, th- thanks, uh, <laughs> <laughs> thanks all of you for for, for joining me for this um, contemplative moment and, and for the two and a half hours that preceded it. Jeepers. Uh, <laughs> uh, but but I'm but I'm sure it won't last that long for our listeners. <laughs> By the time we've edited it down, listeners, we we. Um, we we trust that you've in, that you've enjoyed hearing our our rambles, and we'll be back again with another combination of of stories in about a month. You know, in the meantime, we've got a very large back catalogue. If you if you've been uh, fortunate enough not to have heard all of them by now, there's plenty more for you to go and uh, listen to. <laughs> and if you have listened to them all, well, you know, you, you might have forgotten some of them by now. So you know, there, there's always that possibility too. Uh, but for now, uh, it's bye from me and probably bye for them too. Bye. Bye. bye.
<laughs> What's the secret of comedy? <laughs> Timing. Anything you guys want to talk about that's happened lately or since we last gathered? Has it been a month? Uh, yes. Well, then, it's gone very quickly. Mm. I think we've all been out enjoying the sun, haven't we? Until this week. Until this week, which is why we're back in again <laughs> at our microphones, because there's nothing better to be doing. Still been sweltering up these parts. Oh, right. Today's a little overcast, but mm. it hasn't, uh, hasn't started raining yet here. There you go. <laughs> it's always weather. It's, it's always sunny in the, the north. weather. Brilliant. Yeah, yeah. Excellent. Okay. Well, moving on. So we're going to kick off. You, this is so. This is so slick. It's unbelievable. <laughs> <laughs> but the beauty is, you can leave all this in. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So let's, we, so let's. The more effort we put in, the less editing Richard has to do. Come on. Yeah, that's right. <clears throat> let's not be selfish. Yeah. 